Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever in the world you may be. This is Nicole Beasy, and you are listening to You Know Everything. Oh my God, that was my fanciest intro ever. I did a little bit of practice. I've been in Australia for the last three weeks, and it's been crazy. The next episode will be about that. So if you want to listen to the massive expansion and then the somewhat grueling contraction that has occurred, please tune into the next episode. I don't even know what I'm going to call it yet, but I'm sure it'll be something completely wackadoodle, which won't have anything to do with what I actually talk about, which will make it incredibly SEO friendly and, you know, all the things that crazy creativity comes with. That was a fun alliteration. This is actually a quantum business book club episode. And if you've been listening to this mini series within the You Know Everything podcast, you know that I am using my favorite books, the books that I have returned to year after year, and that has been many years, my friends, to remind me what I'm doing, why I'm doing it, and how I'm doing it, and to continually spark my creativity. You know that I think creativity is the X factor in success, not just in business, but also in life. And so when you learn how to flex your creative muscle, it's going to change everything for you. And these two gents, Tom and David Kelly, have written not one, but two books that I am obsessed with. The first that we're really going to dive into today is called Creative Confidence. The other book written solely by Tom Kelly is called The Art of Innovation. That one is a lot more case studies based on the IDEO company, which is a consulting company that I think David really started and founded. But these two tended to work in tandem with each other which is amazing. I can't actually imagine running like an international consulting firm with one of my brothers, but hey, you know, stranger things have happened. (laughs) I've definitely worked with people who are a lot more of a live wire than either one of them. Actually, that's not true. One of them's pretty fucking another podcast episode worthy uh, story, but I digress as per usual. I am really fucking excited, though, to get into creative confidence. When I first discovered it, firstly, it was incredibly validating because these two are Stanford graduates, I think, actually. I might be speaking out of school on that one. They have a postgraduate-ish school at Stanford. And for those of you not in the United States or who don't really give a fuck about university-level education, Stanford is considered to be one of the elite institutions in the world. It tends to create a pretty networked group of graduates that go on to be, you know, multi-gajillionaires by the time they hit 30 and they found some of the most disruptive tech companies, fashion companies, consultancy companies. I mean, anything sort of cutting edge tends to to be somewhat related to Stanford and not just the, the legal studies, the religious studies, like they're, it's a pretty cool institution. And I think it's just about an hour south east-ish of San Francisco. So it's very intertwined with sort of the Bay Area and the Silicon Valley culture. And so, I mean, don't get me wrong, I probably have a lot of ego tied up with the fact that this esteemed institution was running things the way that I've always been working. And it's not to say that I came up with this methodology, but it is an incredibly creative way of approaching your work. And you do not have to be an artist, nor do you need to consider yourself creative to actually find this lens within which to view the world incredibly useful. So with that, I'm going to get into creative confidence and why I'm completely obsessed with it. I'm also going to talk a little bit about why that matters so much to entrepreneurs and business owners, especially small business owners, and how we can really apply. What I love about this so much 
It is his tactical strategies, things you can do in your day-to-day that don't cost any extra money. They can be implemented immediately and they will literally change the way you think. They will change the results that you get and they will enable you to find success in a way that feels really fun. And I mean, creativity to me is fun. It's this process of continual experimentation. So these gents argue, whatever your profession, when you approach it with creativity, you'll come up with new and better solutions and more success. People with creative confidence have greater impact on the world around them. And there are a lot of benefits to leading with creativity or as these guys talk about it, design thinking. So design thinking really focuses on a handful of different things. Firstly, your intuition, which isn't too, I mean, you know me, and I like I'm also thinking about like, do I want to call it woo anymore? Because that is somewhat disrespectful. Thank you, Brandy, from this plus that for pointing that out. That was one of the interviews, the relatable interview series that I'm doing. So check that interview out. It was fascinating, but I digress. So design thinking focuses on a handful of different components, intuition, pattern recognition, emotional, meaningful, and functional. With the idea that if you are creative, if you focus on creative confidence, you are going to be more resilient. You're going to be more trusting. You're going to be growth mindset oriented, which means you are continually expanding your understanding and your perception of the universe rather than just accepting the way that things are. Their definition of creative confidence, and this may have been what hooked me and you'll see why as soon as I get through it, but it it helped encapsulate the way that I like to think about this world. And don't get me wrong, this world is fucked up. However, we always have a choice. And you can choose to continually focus on the fucked upness of everything, or you can choose to think about the potential opportunities, the things that we don't even know about. And yes, that can be incredibly confronting when thinking about some of the extreme tragedies occurring on the face of this planet right now. But what creative confidence enables you to do, if you so choose, is switch your perspective to a way that stops you from focusing on things that are out of your control and pulls in the ability that you have to affect positive change. So creative confidence is an inherently optimistic way of looking at what's possible, improving on existing ideas, and positively impacting the world around you. I'm going to read that again. Creative confidence, an inherently optimistic way of looking at what's possible, improving on existing ideas, and positively impacting the world around you. Now, the reason that I'm kind of obsessed with both of these books, and I continually refer back to them, is like I said, it absolutely framed the way that I approach my work and and just even the way that I think. Design thinking is using those components that I was talking about, intuition, pattern recognition, emotional, meaningful, and functional concepts to disrupt your current reality. So I'm going to take you on a little bit of a a journey, a little storybook time. But I started my own company, my first business when I was 23, which was a long time ago. And I didn't do that because I felt particularly called to the work. I mean, I I was studying audio engineering at the time. I was surrounded by what I perceived to be incredibly talented, genius level creators. And I honestly did not feel like one of them. Now, these people were really struggling to get their work and their ideas out into the world. And I noticed a handful of constructs that didn't exist, but could. And we didn't have a lot of, we didn't have any fucking money. I was going to say we didn't have a lot of resources, but let's, let's just start. We had zero dinero. 
So we had to get really creative. And one of the first projects that I was a part of was building a studio in an abandoned warehouse. It was an incredibly rogue move. It was awful. Like, let's just be real. It was two separate rooms where we were running cable through walls that we punched holes through. Acoustically, it was a nightmare. You couldn't see the artists when you were recording them. Like, it was it was fucked up. So that started getting the wheels turning. And a producer approached me to say that they really wanted to create a space that solved some of these challenges that we were experiencing, which was beyond just technical and access. There was increasing ego. And I don't know if you've ever worked sort of in a creative collective, but one of the things that can happen in business, especially when you're first starting out, is there's a lot of fear around going out all on your own. It's an incredible responsibility. And there's just a thousand and one things to try and do in every minute. So then when you disperse that responsibility amongst people, it can feel very democratic and also alleviate some of the stress that you're experiencing. That said, you now have like 18 cooks in the kitchen. So it can take a lot longer for things to get done. And naturally, people's strengths and weaknesses are going to emerge, right? And so my strength, as often as I wanted to continually be moving into more creative spaces, was always the business. It was always the organization of things, always the sort of guideship and eventually the leadership. And so I was able often, just for the record at this time, I was the only female in the room. And I think there was something to that. Like when you have a bunch of dudes wagging their dicks around, things can get a little obnoxious. (laughs) That's probably a nice way of putting it. We had a few constraints within which we needed to work. One, very under-resourced. Two, we now had established what it takes to build a studio, but really like the most important factors. Whereas I think a bunch of like young gun audio engineers were obsessed with the audio quality. The reality is, is creating like a really comfortable user experience mattered a heck of a lot more. And any musician out there, any creative out there, any person who's worked in the arts will probably understand that when you're in a space that really supports that process, it kind of doesn't matter what tools and resources you have. Like you can be doing it in the fucking abandoned warehouse like we were. But if you're comfortable, if you feel supported, if you've got space to really play and experiment in a way that alleviates some of the pressure of like creating your best work, but you just are working. It, it really helps. So we started hunting around the city and this was um, Sydney, Australia. And we found another producer who had built a beautiful studio and they were struggling with paying the rent. Now they had an incredibly small production space, like teeny tiny. I don't even know, like square footage. I mean, it felt like it was enough size for a desk and then like two people to sit in there. And that was about it. And it was kind of this little hole, (laughs) Uh, but it had been used as a little production space. Like it it was actually quite quite the little den. But what this producer had done was created some connectivity to the main live space. And you did actually have visual access to the live space. And then they were also willing to allow us to use the bigger desk and their production space when they weren't using it. And so this became an incredibly economical situation. The caveat, though, the X factor was that this space was positioned above the local community radio station. So artists and bands and all sorts of really interesting people who were kind of tuned into that like NPR network for the United States National Public Radio is definitely a a culture in and of itself. So we're upstairs from that. And then we're also on top of a rehearsal studio. So literally like, you know, 50 
plus artists are walking through the doors of this building every day. That was an incredible marketing opportunity. And so despite the fact that we had found probably one of the cheapest opportunities, it was really leveraging everything we could to be able to build this business. Now, this business was, <laughs> we were in way over our heads and we failed fast and failed frequently. So, you know, and trying to just set up the space and trying to figure out how to price the services that we were selling and trying to figure out how to market and trying to figure out our packages and trying to figure out how to lead and how to work with each other. Every single day felt like a massive failure. But what we started to discover were certain patterns, again, where this producer really excelled and where I really excelled. And we were able to then adapt our business to those patterns. And we use all different ways of thinking, but absolutely intuition, absolutely our emotional reactions, the meaningful feedback that we would get, and the functional reality within which we were working to build this business. And so when I stumbled upon design thinking. And design thinking breaks down into sort of four major components. Very, very simple stuff. The first being inspiration. The second being synthesis. The third being ideation and experimentation. And then the fourth being implementation. That's it. That's the framework. And I love, I love frameworks because they simplify incredibly complex realities. Now, if you think about building a business, creating a product or service, or even simply having an idea and wondering where to from here, there's four steps. That's it. That's why I love Creative Confidence. And that's why I think it's this is such an incredible book. So I'm going to obviously get into each one of those steps with a lot more depth. So let's, you know, let's do that right motherfucker now. <laughs> I feel like I'm getting a little, a little uh, preachy in this only because I, like I said, I've led a ton of different workshops on this. It, it really has fueled my own creative fire. And probably of all the books that I've read, this one I feel not just the most comfortable with, but the most experienced with as well. So I'm going to try and like not, I'm going to take off my little preachy voice. So first and foremost, inspiration. This is where you really, really get to play. They use all sorts of examples in this book, both in the art of innovation and creative confidence. But one of the ones that I love is the, one of the brothers was in Japan working for their consulting firm, IDEO. And he started noticing that people were wearing different colored shoes. Same shoe, sometimes different shoes, sometimes kind of just depended on that person's particular fashion forward thinking. But he, he couldn't help but wonder, why is everybody wearing different shoes? And it was a trend. And so working with some fashion designers, they tested this idea of like, what if you just create a pair of shoes that are different, that actually speak to this trend? And it was an incredibly successful idea until it wasn't. But it's, you know, that's both an example of inspiration and this idea of pattern recognition. So when you are in your world, and this is where a lot of entrepreneurs start, this is where a lot of new products come from, start looking at those problems or those sparks or those things that just get you thinking, huh, I wonder why, dot, dot, dot. So for me, it usually comes from a problem-solving situation where someone's like continually complaining about this thing or they can't quite figure this out. It feels like an intractable issue. And that's when my brain really starts to spin. Why is this happening? Is there a better way of doing this? Can we make this easier? Those are different questions I frequently turn to in this inspiration phase to wonder, is, 
what could happen here? And the best part about the inspiration phase is there are no rules. You brainstorm, you mind map, you get together with your favorite groups of people. This is where, you know, imagine like six of you sitting around a table. There might be a bottle of wine in between, but, you know, you're shooting the shit. You're coming up with all sorts of crazy ideas and it doesn't matter if they're viable, if they've been done before, if they seem completely batshit crazy, you're really just coming up with ideas. From there, you're going to desynthesis. And this is where the pattern recognition really starts to be applied. Because what you start to do is look at all of these different ideas. And you start to ask, what are the patterns here? What are we observing in terms of our observations? You really do start to ask, okay, where is the fertile ground in this? How can we, you know, use the values in our business or the resources that we have available or what feels really fucking exciting? You start to apply a couple of filters that are going to make a lot more sense to you on an individual basis to this massive conglomerate of ideas. And it can simply be, again, like really, really simple questions like how do we reduce customer waiting time or how can we reduce perceived waiting time. That's a great example of what's happening in this synthesis situation. From there, you move into ideation and experimentation. So this is where you start to really filter not just what you think is really exciting or what you think is going to work, but based on workable, compelling, human-centered solutions, you start to apply. You really create a plan in this stage. This is where you strategize. This is where you create white papers. This is where you create timelines. And you start to go, okay, here are the potential ideas that we have. And here are some strategies which we would like to test. Here's what that testing might look like. This is where you set the milestones. Again, the timelines, the budgets. This is where you start to pull out those ideas from the ether and bring them down into the real world. The last is then implementation. And implementation is not just actually getting this shit done and taking these ideas and pulling them out of the ether and into your business. This is where we start to measure. And you hear me talk about this so often because I think goals and targets and milestones have gotten a really, really bad rap. We have assumed that they are the end. They are what, like the, the end result that we're trying to create. And design thinking and creative confidence really helped me flip this on its head. Absolutely not. They're simply mile markers. They are simply targets that enable us to learn. And that is the crucial component of the implementation step in design thinking is that you were learning from the implementation of the third step which is the ideation and experimentation. So you look at everything as an experiment. You hypothesize and then you learn. And then this is where design thinking, albeit so simple, but also revolutionary, you know you're going back to the first step, back to ideation. So as soon as you finish with implementation, you go right back to ideation. So it is a continual process of improvement. And I've literally been saying I'm on a self-induced professional development plan for continual improvement since I was 20 years old. (laughs) So again, this resonated with me uh, deeply. But I love that, you know, two things that I think really stand out from this way of thinking is that firstly, you're never done. 
to me, this eliminates perfectionism, comparisonitis, like all of the things, even imposter phenomenon, like all of these very trendy, buzzworthy things that tend to hold us back in our growth and our success. Because the thing is, it's like wherever we're at right now, we know we're going to change that. We know we're going to take the information we're learning in this moment, apply it and expand. And we don't know what that's going to look like because it's always an experiment. And so then that leads me to the second wing is we're continually experimenting. For me, when I think about anything that I'm doing as a test rather than the way, it just makes it more fun. And something that I certainly work with all of my clients on and probably anybody that I fucking talk to because I'm one of those obnoxious people. This is I'm like obsessed with what I do. And so it's all that I talk about. But any problem, any um, strategy, any employee or vendor relationship, anything that you are trying to create or solve or overcome, it's not about that individual particular issue, right? It's about creating a blueprint for your success. And so that's when we think about things in terms of an experiment. All we're doing is actually looking for a very simple framework, you know, potentially a four-step process that allows us to individually understand how we work, how we think, how we relate, and then how we're going to succeed. Whew. Okay, I think I'm, I'm getting into this now. So I'm going to quote, this is a quote the boys pulled out in one of their books. Edison maintained that the real measure of success is the number of experiments that can be crowded into 24 hours. So, you know, you often hear like fail fast, fail frequently. That's why. It's not about like how good you are. It's about how good you can get at getting good. So how do you cultivate this way of working and this way of thinking? Or as Tom and David Kelly talk about creating, cultivating a creative spark. So they break this out into eight different steps. And I think I'd just like to highlight right here as well. You'll hear these steps somewhat reinterpreted in a lot of the books that I talk about. And I'll, I'll sort of identify some of the things that really reminded me of this as I was going through it. But it's interesting when you start to really look at all of these kind of how-tos and development concepts and strategies and you know professional and personal development gurus they're all kind of talking about the same thing. And it's not to say that they're regurgitating or repurposing or even appropriating. I like to believe that we're all standing on the shoulders of giants and ideas are meant to be built upon its design thinking, right? We're taking the implementation and what we learn in that phase and then ideating and improving. So with that, uh, the first step is <laughs> choose creativity. To be more creative, the first step is just simply to decide that you want that to happen. I think creativity has gotten a really bad rap, and there are a lot of reasons for that, but essentially it was trendy. And I, actually, I wrote a blog about that, so I won't get into it now, but just the sort of historical foundations of creativity and that, you know, way back in the day, and I'm talking like Plato, Socrates, they would debate, is God the only one that can create or are humans able to create? And, and it, was a, it was a heated debate because the idea that humans could create was potentially blasphemous. So that debate ensued for hundreds of years. And then came the introduction of crafts and trades and then the industrial revolution and suddenly data and metrics became a lot more reliable and secure than this concept of intuition and creativity and art. And so then the pendulum starts to swing and 
society as a whole becomes obsessed with data and metrics. And I personally believe we're kind of on the swing back from that pendulum. We're a combination of both intuition and emotional intelligence used with data is absolutely going to be the way forward. And I'm now on like a massive fucking uh, side conversation. But, you know, like as AI and as technology is introduced more and more into our daily lives, creativity is going to be the space where humans really excel. And there will be a certain level of creativity and art that I think only the human mind is capable of. So choosing creativity is incredibly powerful. And I would advise the way forward for success in our ever-changing landscape. So the second is think like a traveler. And you, if you know me, you would know this was also incredibly validating. So like a visitor to a foreign land, try turning fresh eyes on your surrounding, no matter how mundane or familiar. Expose yourself to new ideas and experiences. So there's a book I'm going to get into a lot later in the Quantum Business Book Club called The Diamond Cutter. And this is a this is an outlier. I've never heard anybody talk about this book in any of my research, even from, you know, Tim Ferriss's Titans, Tools of Titans, which is essentially just a giant like reading list for me. But one of the ways to success that this book talks about is at least set the frequency at whatever you want. If you have the freedom at least once a week, have a day that is unlike any of the other days that you typically lead or live or whatever. Um, really getting out of your comfort zone. And, you know, some people will just say like, basically take a different way to work. It can look like however you want, but really creating some, a little bit of chaos in your day, in your experience, because that is actually where art comes from. And chaos is a loaded word. All that means is you're really opening yourself up to an experience that you don't understand, that you don't know how it's going to go, that you might feel really uncomfortable in. So the third is engaged, relaxed attention. Again, this is where you purposefully create situations where you're kind of on autopilot. A lot of people talk about driving like this. Like sometimes you get to your destination and you don't really even remember how you got there. Some For some people, it's running or yoga. Others of us, it's just simply meditation, free writing, typing. There's a lot of things in your day that you're probably going to autopilot, even something like cooking and cleaning. But actually understanding when or what activity that you can apply to really let your brain kind of go into cruise control is a fantastic way of flirting with that creative muse. Number four is empathize with your end user. And there was like a reality TV show where, you know, the boss would show up and, and of these like massive companies and would actually pretend to just be one of the entry level employees or consumers. And I think that's a really interesting way when you are feeling a little bit stuck in what you're doing or why you're doing it or you're questioning your purpose, maybe go back to the beginning. Act like a beginner. And you hear that so often, but I don't think it's that easy to step into that role. And so, you know, really asking yourself, especially in the ideation phase, like, who am I doing this for? Why am I doing this? What is the end result or whom is the end user of this? And how can I put myself in their shoes? which then leads to step number five, do observations in the field. Go out into your industry, into your environment, and be one of the people. This is where when you're like a blind shopper, but it's really easy, and I speak from experience on this one, to just get stuck in behind your computer and work, 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 and then think you know all the best things, or even just to get stuck in the data and the analytics, and you forget what it would be like to be a human experiencing with your product. And straight up, 
you know, I'll, I'll just share a little bit from my own experience. Sometimes like I'm overwhelmed by the digital experience and, you know, we have funnels and we have social media and we have all of these different tools that can automate the consumer, the customer, client, buyer experience. And I get, I get so far away from that experience that it actually freaks me out to get back to it. And I guess I'm saying this largely because I, I need to do a deep dive into all of those systems in my businesses, but I end up speaking a lot with my clients about their end user experience. And to be honest, it's very rare that someone feels like they have an accurate, timely, informed idea of what that experience is like. So again, this is just ways of fostering and, and fueling your own creativity. But that's a really interesting one to explore. Ask questions starting with why. I think we all know that one. It doesn't need a lot of explanation. Reframe challenges. And we'll get into to ways that these guys talk about reframing. And then build a creative support network. And that's the one that I think you will hear highlighted across every single one of these books and every single development strategy effort is you need to surround yourself with people and resources that amplify your creativity in this instance. So just to go through those steps once again, in order to cultivate a creative spark, creative confidence suggests that you choose creativity, you think like a traveler, you engage relaxed attention, you empathize with your end user, you do observations in the field, you ask questions starting with why, you reframe challenges, and you build a creative support network. But I think, you know, first and foremost, the first step, choose creativity, is absolutely the most important. For some of us, this might, I mean, you're listening to this podcast, and so you're probably as interested in the creative industries and the creative economy and using creativity as a tool as I am. Otherwise, you wouldn't be listening. So I don't need to overemphasize how important choosing creativity is. But what I will say is that even I have to remind myself, start with creativity, choose creativity, allow this to be an exploratory process because it's really easy to get caught up with the data and the proof and the studies and the need to over explain that has just, again, just become really, really trendy. It's okay to trust your intuition in business. So some of the reframing techniques that these guys go through, and, and I personally think, you know, you'll hear me say, what's the fastest way to change your world is to change your perspective. And I love that because it's free and instant. That's reframing. Reframing is taking a particular situation or way of thinking or feeling and simply turning it around to create something different. There's no one right way. You might not know how that's going to affect you, but again, worth potentially experimenting with. So their techniques are first step back from obvious solutions. So as an example, like going back to that, the studio that I was working with. So first things first, we, we just simply observed that this very creative collective space was kind of a mess. And just in wanting to really be able to focus on our own work and working with not, I don't want to say higher caliber artists, but artists that were also really serious about creating sellable product, for lack of a better way of putting it. That chaos and that collective experience just simply wasn't working. So we identified a challenge, right? And now this individual wanted to work with me because he saw my ability to communicate, my ability to organize, and my ability to get shit done as a, as a huge complement to his skills, which were, I mean, he was an obscenely good producer. His communication skills are a little bit lacking. 
Additionally, you know, when you're someone who who thrives on creativity and who has really been working in it, like who has who has highlighted and emphasized their own creativity for so long, their own thinking and mind and their ideas can feel a little bit chaotic. So to find someone that's able to really kind of ground that. I don't want to say like airy fairy because that absolutely wasn't it. But when you have a thousand ideas a minute, having someone that can quickly identify which ones are viable and then pull them down to earth and create a strategy and implement them, really, really useful. And so although we didn't necessarily, these weren't obvious solutions, but you know, when you start to apply constraints to them, we'll get into that as well, i.e. like not a lot of resources, we want a better user experience. It helps you to start reframe what we're doing because obviously we could have just gotten an expensive pre-built studio, charged a lot of money, and just kind of taken a leap like that. That's a pretty obvious solution. So to really put some constraints around what we were thinking while also highlighting our individual strengths and acknowledging our weaknesses, we were able to find a really, really creative solution. So alter your focus or point of view is step number two in the reframing techniques. And oftentimes this can look like just asking a different question. So I was thinking about this. I was listening to another podcast and they were talking about homelessness or I should say unhoused people. It's the new new way of, of describing that. So often with unhoused people, what the solution that's being applied is more beds. But if you look at a city like Los Angeles, there are enough vacant properties and beds in that city to house every single person on the streets. So this isn't a bed issue. There's also enough funding and money in that city to address this problem. This isn't a funding issue. So we've got to ask a different question. Why are there so many unhoused people in Los Angeles? And when you start asking questions like that, you start looking at things like the rental policies and you know how quickly are able landlords and property owners are able to raise prices or what's happening with short-term rentals and how that's limiting just simply the available number of affordable spaces to rent. So by altering your focus or point of view and asking different questions, that can often reframe your situation. Uncover the real issue. So again, this is this is really about, if you hear me flipping pages in the book, forgive me, I am quite literally looking at the book right now. So if you only ask questions about the problem, you might miss out on the possibility of using different solutions. So start asking about what is it that people really want? And so like you look at, I mean, this one just popped into my head, so forgive me, but like something like McDonald's. And in creating these franchise opportunities, and one of the things that I think a lot of people really like about McDonald's is they know they can get, you know, those French fries and that Big Mac anywhere they are in the world. Initially, I think the solution was, you know, creating a efficient experience so you could get food and fed very quickly. But once that market became saturated, it was this idea that you could really create a replicable end user experience. The fact that, you know, some people really, really like to know they're going to be able to get exactly what they want, when they want, wherever they are. That level of efficiency is an incredible value. And so again, it's it's really asking you when you plateau, when you're experiencing a challenge you don't understand, this is just simply a technique to reframe the way that you're thinking about it. Another step is look for ways to bypass resistance or mental blocks. You'll hear me say, how can I make this easier? If you try to get people to stop drinking impure water from the local well in a developing country, you may find villagers responding with, my mother gave me water from the well. Are you saying my mother is wrong? I think about this like when often when I'm working with business owners and 
we talk about the need to continually update software solutions or, you know, another challenge is I'm working with some business owners who have to, you know, will continually tell me they are bad at technology. Now, if I just keep going back to them and saying, well, fucking deal with it, (laughs) figure it out. That's a fairly confrontational way of exploring that. And believe me, I've, I've definitely, I've done that before. I have a lot of issues with people who aren't open to continually learning, but that's my own thing. So, you know, with this example that they talk about in the book, the contrast is to to really get into how beautiful that water was then, but now the water is impure. And what kind of water do, you know, these villagers want their own children drinking? So to bring it back to the example I was sharing with these businesses, a reframe that I found that was incredibly powerful was like, hey, look, we live in a technology-oriented world now you're going to be updating your software every 18 to 24 months just to stay relevant. So factor that into your scalable business. Factor that into your growth. If you want to stay relevant, if you want to stay successful, this is just another process. It's the same thing as hiring and firing employees. It's just going to have to happen. We don't question why. I mean, that's a whole nother conversation. Maybe not the best example, but, you know, it's like delivering flowers or working in a restaurant. Like you need to connect your end consumer with your product. And and there's a methodology for that. Now, how that happens, what differentiates you from other businesses, that's where you get to be really creative. And so by looking for ways to make it easier to bypass resistance or mental blocks and reframing it as like I was doing earlier, this is about finding a blueprint for success. So knowing that this is the reality that within which we live. How do you want to approach that? Why do you want to stay relevant? Why do you want your business to be successful? And so when it's, again, reframed in terminology, like in terms of like, this is how you be successful, that absolutely shifts everything for the people I work with because they're working with me because they want to be successful, right? And so rather than thinking about like, this is just a pain in the ass or this is bullshit or this is expensive, it's like, well, yes, all of those things and... This is something we get to plan for moving forward. We know this is going to happen, so we can we can we can create the space for it. And then the fifth reframe is think about the opposite. And so this was I discovered oblique strategies by Brian Eno way back in the day when I was in the studio. Brian Eno is a famous, famous, I mean, unbelievable producer and just thought leader. I, I'm not even going to get into Eno because that is like an, a conversation that I could go on to like. I'm stumbling over my words. It's like how much I have to say about Eno. But he created this deck and it was called Oblique Strategies and it was designed for creatives very specifically, but especially in studio scenarios where you were just like banging your head up against a wall. And it was just a whole series of reframes. One of which was often, what if you turned this upside down? What if you started from the end and went backwards? So you literally think about the opposite in order to reframe the situation. So like, just as an example, let's say you're looking to increase your sales. Rather than thinking, how do we increase our sales? We think, why aren't we getting any sales? What are all of the reasons that we're not getting sales? Super fucking simple, right? Not very confrontational either. And in fact, you probably have a lot more reasons why you're not getting sales than what you can do to get sales, which is why you have the problem in the first place. It's easy to talk about all of these ways of thinking, right? And like I said, you know, I'm obsessed with kind of taking this, these ideas out of the ether and grounding them on earth. And so Tom and David Kelly and in Creative Confidence, they talk about the action catalysts. And the first one, which for whatever reason is the hardest one for all of us to fucking learn. And here I am now 
very much positioning myself in this place to support business owners and entrepreneurs and creatives is to get help. Hire somebody or recruit a willing colleague for a short period or find an advisor or an expert or a mentor to expand your horizons. Make problem solving someone else's for a while. Share the burden to see if they or you come up with a new way to make progress. And the reason I read that one out is I'd never thought about in terms of let someone else do the problem solving for you. If you feel like you have plateaued, if you feel like you have come to the end of this learning experience or opportunity, like bring in the experts. And, you know, the, one of the things they talk about is, is building a creative community. And that's not just like a group of like artists and, you know, whatever, however you would define creatives. It's people who are willing to think outside of the box, people with a growth mindset. So often with entrepreneurs and creatives and trailblazers and rebels and rule breakers is we're surrounded by people who think we're fucking crazy and who continually tell us to like scale back to be less risky, to not try that thing. And they might be a little bit tired of us constantly talking about our shit because <laughs> they're just, they're the, you know, so the point being get help. And whether that's a peer, whether that's a mastermind, whether that's a coach or a mentor, an advisor or a consultant, there's nothing wrong with investing in that help. And additionally, it may or may not work out, but it's absolutely like the way that you think it is, but it will 100% give you different ways of thinking and results that will contribute to your success. The second is create peer pressure. And so this is a, this is a really powerful tool. A lot of us are more accountable to others than we are ourselves. And yes, this can show up as people pleasing. Yes, this can be some kind of old fucking performance wound, but here's the thing. At some point, and I've absolutely, this is, this is more for me than for you for sure. But at some point, we just have to accept how we work best. And if I'm accountable to others more than myself, so be it. This is where, you know, especially in like fitness or in writing a book or in like these kind of like huge, long, overwhelming projects, creating some type of um, accountability network is going to be incredibly incredibly helpful. Gather an audience. So not only are you seeking out accountability individually, but you're like doing this quite publicly. So, you know, this is where people donate to the opposing political party or you have to write a check to the tobacco groups or, you know, the NRA or whatever it is to, to like discourage you or punish you even if you don't achieve your goal. Putting stuff out on social media, putting it on your website, calling out your organizational goals and missions. These are all ways of doing and setting up very public sounding boards, right? Do a bad job. This is what I'm working on right now because when I read this, I was like, woohoo! But just for a minute, especially when you're in the early stages of implementation, suspend the idea of how well you are doing. Just get something out there. That is one, you know, that's why we prototype. That's why we beta launch. That's why we focus group is you just get some, something out there because then you can gather more information, you can ideate, and you can improve. And then fifth, lower the stakes. So if this is a problem that you are working on and it feels so important that everything hinges on it, make it less important. That's a lot of fucking pressure. So have some fun. You know, like when you notice you're being paralyzed with indecision, take the perfect the perfect choice out of it and just just make a decision. I also have a podcast on decision making because this is something that I see so often and is potentially I think what's holding most people back 
of actually, yeah, I'm going to call that out decision-making, effective decision-making. Just fucking do it. You can change your mind. You can backtrack. You can acknowledge that was the wrong thing to do. But most of the time when you make a decision, it's like setting that target or that milestone. It just allows you to take a couple more steps further. And from there, you can course correct. When you feel it's like analysis by paralysis, right? And that's one of the things that creatives can really, 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 really struggle with. You have a million thousand ideas. How do you pick one? And so instead, they just stay in this a million thousand ideas place. And I've had a few different people that I've been talking to very recently that have been umming and awing about what to do in their business and working with me as a coach and what to do next. And they're still umming and awing. There's people that I know have been doing that for six months or a year. And imagine what they could have achieved had they just simply made a decision. And absolutely, it could be the wrong decision. But this is where failing frequently and being creative, applying design thinking, it all becomes incredibly powerful because we stop thinking about any one choice or decision or strategy being the end game or even a goal. We know it's just a step on a very, very long path. So just to summarize the action catalysts, so a little nudge, a natural propensity to combat inaction. Figure out what is holding you back and tackle that in some way. Get help, create peer pressure, gather an audience, do a bad job, or simply lower the stakes. So lastly, for the book, they talk about constraints and how that can really help us leap into action. So yeah, the last half of Creative Confidence really talks about the implementation phase. Because again, so often with creatives, we're amazing at coming up with ideas. But we don't talk a lot about, or not, I don't want to say we don't talk a lot about, because we probably talk about it ad nauseum. That's the problem is we just keep fucking talking. And the real challenge is, is how can we stop talking and start working? And so these guys would say, tackle a doable piece of the problem. And I love that idea. And you'll hear me talk about this like action gear. Break up the project or break up the strategy or break up the concept into small enough pieces that your brain goes, oh. I can do that. And so often when we're feeling completely overwhelmed, it is a result of paralysis by analysis. We're trying to do all of the things at once. We have all of the ideas and we don't know where to start. I experience this almost every day, almost all day long, because I have a thousand things that I need to do, all of which feel like a very important. And there's, a, I would say, a big chunk that even qualify as priorities, but they don't all get to be a priority. So what do I do? It doesn't fucking matter. Whichever one feels doable now usually feels like a good idea, usually inspires me. Like when I get into that overwhelmed space, I'll always steer towards the thing that I can just do right now that I want to do. And once I get the momentum going, it enables me to be much more action oriented. So tackle a doable piece of the problem. Secondly, narrow the goal. This is the same, same, but different, right? So like, (laughs) I love this example. Curing world hunger is too big. And this is where, you know, I led this whole conversation with this idea that like the world is an incredibly fucked up place, but just continually lamenting about all the fucked upery doesn't do anything. And so often when I tell people about being optimistic, about creative confidence, you know, the like very proverbial responses, but there's starving children in Africa. And it's like, yeah, cool. But what are you fucking doing about that? How does that actually impact your experience? And not to say, like, put your head in the sand and don't do anything about it, but, like, walk outside and fucking give someone some food then if that is such a huge issue for you. Like, there are a million things you can do right now in your experience 
to combat some of those issues. So to continually just talk about them or complain about them, you're not really doing anything about it. Narrow the goal. Set smaller achievable goals that you can act on. Work in a soup kitchen. Sponsor a child. Narrow the scope so that you can get started. Create a milestone and connect it to a social contract. So we kind of talked a little bit about this, but when working on like huge innovation projects, when really challenging or trying to disrupt the way things that are done, create a series of check-ins and also teams or committees or peer reviews so that it's not just a check-in for you to be like, well, where am I at? But there's some kind of a feedback network. So again, this is where like masterminds are really useful. This is where if you're training for a marathon and doing it with a group, like you can in real time get feedback for not just like where you're at on your schedule, but how you're feeling about it. Is there room for improvement? If you've not hit the target that you set, like what happened? And really like processing that disappointment, that fear, that insecurity in real time is actually how you release it so that you can move on in a, in a much more focused and empowered way. So it's not just about like setting many deadlines. It's about giving yourself the space to really explore what's working, what's not, and why without, without judgment, right? So that's, I think, the biggest takeaways from the book. And don't get me wrong, there's a hell of a lot more in that book that I can get into, but we're, we're getting up to a, a pretty good amount of time here. So I just want to talk about why I think all of this matters so much, why and how creative confidence has changed my life. And one of the things I didn't really get too into, but is this concept of resilience. So resilience is this ability to continually not just endure the challenges at hand, but to take on bigger and badder challenges. And in goal setting theory, they talk about this, like there's this tension between setting a goal that feels doable because otherwise your subconscious is just going to be like, fuck that, that's impossible. But it also needs to be enough of a stretch that it feels like a challenge. If something's too easy, we just don't fucking do it. But if it's too hard, we also don't fucking do it. So you've got to find this thing in the middle. And with goal setting theory, the idea also being, again, like you chunk things out, you set milestones, you get, you celebrate every single win and every step along the way as you get closer to this big, huge goal. And that creates resilience, which is this ability to, to know that you can do hard things. So if you are resilient, you seek and accept help. Have you noticed like the recurring... <laughs> patterning with that one. And I mean, don't, oh man, it took me so, so, so long in my businesses to understand where and when I need help. And believe me, it was in the moments of my deepest crisis, my mental health breakdowns, pure implosion when I refused help and I needed it the most. So again, it's that like blueprint for success. Now I know what my triggers are. Now I know like the beginning of my downward spirals into destruction, what they look like. and. I get help, whatever that might look like, you know, and then like the, just to uh, to take the dramatization out of this, because sometimes I think we can think it has to be so extreme. For me, it's when I start double booking my calendar. It's when I start working through meetings and even client appointments. And I realize like, oh, there's too much chaos. And this is how you self-sabotage. When you're feeling like everything is impossible, you say yes to too much. And you need help. And so, and you know, I'm in a space now where I can hire people that can just simply manage my calendar, which is obviously not available to everybody. But that took a lot of work and a lot of awareness and simply discovering that 
I want to say yes to everything because I am inherently optimistic and excited about it all. So now I have someone that filters my calendar for me and keeps me, <laughs> man, just keeps me from overbooking. And especially with all the travel, like I was trying to figure out my calendar while being in a time zone that was 16 hours ahead of where I'm typically working. And I'm seeing, I'm seeing overlap on my calendar where I've absolutely double booked, but I, I don't have like the wherewithal to understand like how do I move this so that I'm, I'm no longer overlapping. So anyhow, that's a huge trigger for me. It's not a huge trigger though. Like let's be real, like overlapping my Spanish class with my mentor session is like not going to create any global problems, but it's, it's a good sign. And it's when I go, I'm putting my hand up for help. This needs to get done differently. I'm clearly not the expert in the room. Let me work with some people who are and figure this out. I went off on another massive tangent there with resilience. That's just step one. So the second is cultivate social support. And then the three is create connection. And this is like with resilience, it's this idea that not only are you able to work through anything, that you can take on bigger and badder challenges, but like why? Why does that matter to you? And for a lot of people, it's going to be so they can support their family or so that they can make the world a better place or so that they can create excessive amounts of wealth that makes their life easier and they're able to take care of everybody in their experience, like to each their own. But resilience is what shows up when it feels too hard, when you feel too tired, when you feel too uncertain and you fucking get it done anyway. What I love about creative confidence is this idea that like, you won't know in the moment. It takes time. It takes perspective. This is how we learn. And we review our process, our success, and our failures to remind us what our truth is. Again, why we're doing this. And the reality that you can't fuck it up. 2020 hindsight. I say that all of the time because it really didn't land until I was a little bit I mean, straight up older, but I had some like major fuck ups in my history because I could look back on those fuck ups and go, holy shit, that was a pivotal moment. And I didn't see it in that darkness, in that implosion, in that fucking dark hole. But now I know, you know, I, how do I know what my triggers are and when I need to get help because of significant mental health breakdowns? I wouldn't know, you know, I, now I can look back and go, oh, it started with just this very subtle bubbling under the surface, but then it started to boil and then I boiled over. And now I don't have to wait for things to get out of hand and out of control and so debilitating that I literally can't anymore without help that's completely unrelated to my work. And that is how creative confidence has really shifted my world as I realized that we learn we are continually learning and it's through that application of learning that we get better. And in a little, my hands up right now, you can't see me, but some of us are slow learners. <laughs> some of us, it takes a long time. I was just reading this article about a gent who owns FTX, a massive cryptocurrency exchange. He's, you know, a multi-billionaire at the age of 30. Fast learner. Both of his parents went to Stanford, which is a, a non-planned, ironic little uh, tangent there, but tangent, connecting point, connecting point. But so, yeah, this idea that you can't fuck it up, even when it feels like you've royally, royally fucked it, <laughs> chances are, with some perspective, with some hindsight, this will be another pivotal moment. And even if it's just to teach you like who you don't work with or that this isn't this isn't a business for you anymore, it's it's time to, you know, cash it all in and, and try something completely new. Once you get to that place of that new thing and you're further along in the path, you 
you will have perspective. And I don't want to tell you how you're going to feel about that particular experience. But what I will say is there's a reason why so many successful people have a tragic circumstance or have had to overcome a huge obstacle in their growth. It's because that gave them resilience. That gave them the skills and the mindset that they needed to succeed. Another thing that can happen is we can get really defensive. And I have both hands and, you know, all 10 toads raised on this one. What creative confidence enables us to do is to show up undefended. When you think of everything as an experiment, you're just testing. Maybe I'm right. Maybe I'm wrong. I have no idea if this is going to work out or not, but I'm willing to try. And if you if you know me in my personal world, you get to see all of the crazy ass shit that I'm doing. And people will often be like, wow, that's amazing. You're so cool. Blah, blah, blah. And it's like, maybe. Or maybe I'll be some crazy ass lady in a muumu drinking white wine out of a box in front of your apartment building, hoping that I get some of your leftovers from lunch. Like the jury is out. But I also will share this. I don't think I've ever said this out loud. This was a very new point of awareness as I was, you know, getting on a plane to go to Australia with two weeks notice to work with somebody who I have no experience with. Maybe, maybe it'll work. And it's that willingness to experiment and to know and to throw myself out there into like crazy, potentially very risky situations like maybe it'll work. Maybe it won't, but I know I'm going to gain something from this regardless. So I'm not married to the outcome and I don't have to get defensive when things don't go exactly the way that I would have planned or the way I would have done it. It's like, huh, okay, maybe this will work. There's only one way to find out, right? And so, and this is another thing I'm, I will get into in the next episode a lot, but so often what's holding us back is fear. It's fear of rejection. It's fear of failure. It's fear of fucking it up. It's fear of judgment. It's I mean, the list is fucking endless, right? That fear is what we're trying to defend ourselves from. And so if we can acknowledge that fear and set it aside and just simply say, I get it. This is scary. This is absolutely risky. I have every right to be afraid. And also I'm going to try it anyway. It's just an experiment. This is where intuity, intuity, that's not a fucking word, intuition versus strategy really shows up. And I was working with a lot of women over the last few weeks one of whom is a multimillionaire. She is creating a pretty massive development project, has in the past. And she was talking about how she's got like a big shareholders meeting coming up. And she's at a place now with the way that she works and how much she trusts herself and the decisions that she makes that she leads intuitively. And when she sits around this boardroom table with a bunch of dudes stuck in, you know, the old paradigms of colonialist capitalism who want the spreadsheets and the data projections and the cash flows and all of these things, which are really useful business tools, don't get me wrong. She will say, this is a good decision. And they will say, why? And she'll say, because I think so. And for her, that is enough. For them, it's not. And it can create some tension. But as you become, you know, as you choose creativity, you are also choosing your intuition. You are also choosing to say, I don't know, but I have a hunch and I'm willing to explore it. And regardless of if I'm quote unquote right or wrong or this succeeds or fails, we're going to learn a shitload from this. And that learning is going to be applied to our original ideas. And then we are going to be able to synthesize, create strategy and implement and learn and then go back to the beginning. So the final point is that creative confidence and creativity, I mean, to me, it's everything. But when we highlight this or, or focus upon this or prioritize us, that's what I was trying to say, when we prioritize creativity in our work, 
again, not only does it give us inherent optimism, which in as I mean, if you've been there, if you know what I'm like, if you've been through it, you you have to know that you're going to get through it. And believe me, there have been weeks, if not months, when I emotionally did not feel that connection. <laughs> if you had told me it was going to be okay, I would have laughed in your fucking face. I might have punched you in the face as well. Potentially both. Probably both. But after practicing that thought process, I've learned that I don't have to believe it. I just have to choose to know it. That's faith, right? But then we get back into that like intuition. There's no data to support this brouhaha. With creative confidence, we understand that we are continually learning and that we might have to throw everything out and start all the way over. We might have to ask a completely different question. We might have to completely reframe the situation. We might have to stop thinking about product development and start thinking about user experience. We might have to do some serious understanding, learning, iteration before we get to the end result. This could take time. And in fact, it might take as long as it takes, or potentially that's one of the problems you get to explore is how can we reduce the amount of time that this is taking? Because that is a huge resource. So when you release everything that has come before, you can start to really understand where are you at now and where are you going? You can ensure that you were resourced, that you were supported, that you were always looking at any type of progress as growth, despite the failures. And I think that's really all I have to say about creative confidence. It's been a profound evolution in my thinking and in my business ownership and in my strategy development. It is something you'll hear me. I mean, if you've worked with me as a client, can we make this an experiment? Has been one of the most liberating reframes for every single person that I've worked with because it takes the pressure off. And so when you find yourself like running into that wall and when you find yourself just feels like you're having the same conversation over and over and over again, pattern interrupt, say, we're stop and go into a review, go into a reflection, look at what's transpired up until now, and then be willing to go, okay, what if we try something completely fucking different? What would that look like? Enter that ideation phase without any of the constraints and just start playing with it. Just start having fun. Throw anything out there that comes up. And again, you know, there's a lot of different ways that you can do that. Put yourself in totally new scenarios. Surround yourself with different people who are of a growth mindset. And, you know, go back through some of those um, techniques that they talk about in the book to really create and foster creativity. Flipping through the pages right now because, you know, we're at the end and I should probably summarize this with some like killer, bring it all home. But just to reiterate, how do you choose creativity? How do you cultivate that creative spark? You choose. You choose to. You think like a traveler. You engage to relaxed attention. You empathize with your end user. Do observations in the field. Ask questions starting with why. Reframe challenges and build a creative support network. So I hope that I get to be a part of your network. You can always reach out to me, hello at NicoleBZ.com. And I would love to soundboard ideas with you. You can also find me on all of the socials at the BZ channel. And I'm going to be rolling out the anti-business school in a couple of weeks. This has been one of the creative solutions I have come up with as my time becomes more and more limited and my ability to work one-on-one with people not just becomes more limited, but also more exclusive. I really wanted to create a resource that enables anyone and everyone to foster the sense of community. And so with the anti-business school, eventually the Discord community, the container will roll out because I just feel like we can all really support each other and use each other as a sounding board. And that doesn't need to be something that feels 
scary or inaccessible. And yeah, I guess that's all I have to say. Thank you so much for listening. I wouldn't be here without you. Please, if this was useful or if you enjoyed it or if you find yourself coming back for more, give it a like, give it a review. I have like, I mean, I haven't checked. I think I say that at the end of every episode. Probably should. But if you think I'm getting a lot of reviews, you are wrong. (laughs) Any review, I don't even care if it's a bad review. I find bad reviews just as constructive as good reviews and quite funny, to be honest. You know, don't hate the player, hate the game. So, okay, with that, I'm done. Thank you so much for listening. And I wish you all the best with all you do. I hope to hear from you soon. Bye. 